several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter, the show that sets you free when it comes to wine. Today we're going to talk about one of my pet peeves in the wine business. It's a, kind of a love-hate relationship that I have. And no, it's not about Pinot, nor is it about Merlot or Chardonnay. Not about a wine in particular. It's about something that we're all very familiar with, except that we're not familiar with it. That's the problem. It's a thorn in most people's side. It irritates the living daylights out of us. And I've got somebody here. He's one of my best friends in the world. He's also one of the best chefs on the planet. And he's also now a member of the spirit world. <laughs> That's right, David. He's not dead. Oh, as they said in Monty Python, I'm, I'm not, not dead. dead. <laughs> Remember that. Anyway, it's Eric Olson, who's no stranger to this show. Chef extraordinaire. He has been the head chef at some of the, and head of food and beverage, I should say, at some of the finest resorts in the world. So he is no stranger to the thing that we're going to talk about because he's a guy who has been behind the development of this thing. Any guesses from the studio audience? We're talking about wine lists today. Eric, you've made a lot of wine lists in your life, haven't you? I have. And I, I want you to, to do something for me that is probably going to, maybe it's going to tick off a couple of your colleagues in the business. I don't know. You just have to be honest with me and we're going to talk the truth and I'm going to share some opinions. And if you want to disagree with me, you can disagree with me. That's okay. But I will throw a shoe at you. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I don't think I'll disagree with you. Hey, before we jump into the topic, let's talk about what you're doing. You, uh, you've gotten out of the food business to get into the world of spirits. You're making whiskey, vodka, rum. What am I forgetting? Gin. What, what is the relationship between making food and making spirits? You referred to um, the term recipes, when you talk about making spirits, how does that work exactly? Why is it a recipe? I thought you just, you know, got the grains or the grapes or whatever, and you'd ferment them and distill them, and that's that. Yeah, and you'd want to keep it consistent, so you would follow a recipe each time once you really hone in that perfect recipe. The distillers call it a mash bill, and then on the kitchen culinary side, it's a recipe. It's a recipe in my mind. It's basically a production of different flavors, and then we're going to distill out the, the pure essence of the alcohol. Why did you decide to 
switch from a very long career as a chef and really an administrator too to some degree but why make that leap into spirits what's you know what was the attraction well i've always had my hand in in, in the spirit side and, and the beer and, and the wine i just want to make a quality product and i th- think with my background i can really do something that's different and uh, small batches and artisan approach and a little sustainability in there so one of the things that's really interesting about spirits now is we're seeing a lot of winemakers now making spirits and they're actually taking you know either the grapes or even the must right which is the the crushed grapes what's left over that is and they're fermenting that and they're making some of the finest you know i can think of vodkas and brandies brandies and things like that it's something that's interesting here in america because in europe it is very commonplace to find a still in a winery but not common here in the states at least it hasn't been but now they're starting to do that it's really exciting the abc is is opening up the amount of licensing they're doing, and uh, we're going to lower some of the taxes on some of the price points, getting into the craft side of it where we're just getting the heart of the distillation and the heads and the tails are being cut a lot earlier. So we have... Uh, well, what does that mean, the heads and the tails? It's it's the, when you start cooking all the alcohol and just a little... The first alcohol to come out is methyl alcohol, and then it goes to ethyl. And the methyl, you want to take that and throw it out. You're trying to get just the perfect essence, and that's really the perfume, the, the center cut of this distillation process. The center cut. I like that term. Yeah, it's so interesting. The, I think what's even more interesting is that we saw this craft revolution first hit the wine industry with the onslaught of boutique wineries that were making small batch, small production, really quality wines. And then that spilled over, not just figuratively, but literally to the beer industry, which is so interesting. And now the craft industry. And I'm really, really happy to see that because to be frank with you, I see all of these craft alcohol. They're not craft alcohols. These, um, let's just say they're modified alcohols where they're putting flavors and all kinds of junk into them. And it's, and, and they taste terrible. You know, you go in and there's like, you know, 50 different kinds of flavored vodkas and you know, I don't think vodka was meant to, to be enjoyed that way. I think it was meant to be the basis of a good mixed drink. Yeah, let the mixologist do the work. The bartender use fresh ingredients and, and, and a good vodka and mulla the herbs or, or over ice and shake it. However they're going to do it, but let them come up with a cocktail. I think anything you put in that vodka artificially, it's just going to come across in the drink and it's just going to be artificial flavor. Yeah, but people are buying it by, you know, the caseloads and it's really, I mean, I've never tasted a single flavor spirit that I thought was worth drinking. It's it is, terrible. Yeah, and I think you're going to feel the next day as well. But, uh, oh, and why is that? Uh, carcinogens in it and a lot of different uh, propanols, different things that haven't been taken out. The, the larger companies are doing some of those things. They have wider cuts. They take more product that they probably shouldn't be taking for bigger profits. What would you do with the part that you, as a craft spirit maker, would throw out? Would you throw it out or would you do something else with it? There's a lot to do. Some people can put it in their cars. You can start your, your barbecue, <laughs> in your car. cleaning products. So there's there's a purpose for it. It's not not for drinking, though. So the name of your company is now Central Coast Distillery. Yes, sir. And that's fantastic. And you'll be open for business, what, in just another couple of months? A couple of months, we'll be ready to go. And the stills are in there. And, and the exciting thing about it is you're exactly right across the courtyard from the Grape Encounters Emporium. Let's shift gears now. Let's talk about today's subject, which is wineless. There are different kinds of wineless. There's the wineless that you're going to see on the back of the menu, 
Bistro, uh, grills. Yeah, and also a lot of the chain restaurants, mm-hmm. the, you know, they've got a selection of wine. Typically, those wines are not wine list worthy to me. They are just the big brands and they're the names that the consumer is familiar with. And I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, some of the big chain restaurants that could be quality restaurants, but they're, you know, typically they're pushing the big brands because they want to make it a no brainer, don't they, for the consumer that's coming in there. They, the consumer recognizes the name. And, Brand recognition is good. Yeah. I think they also get some help with the, the cost of the menu. Those big wineries help pay for some of those menus. So there's some upside for them. That's a bad reason to have those wines on the wine list. And you make a really huge point, which is they're going to print the menu for the restaurant. And so now they have more control over what goes on the wine list. And it's not necessarily good. And the chef, in a lot of cases, is going to kind of stay out of the mix and just leave it up to that distributor to put the wines on that they think are going to sell. So that's how that that first one happens. The second one is sort of the small abbreviated wine list that is selected, I think, pretty carefully by the boutique chef who is making, you know, generally they have a smaller menu, less mm-hmm. items to choose from, a lot of specialties of the day, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they have a, an abbreviated wine list because they're looking for the best of the best in the wines. And there might be 20 wines on that list or 25 wines on that list, something like that. Those wine lists I like. Those are, they're, those are manageable. And in most cases, don't you think that the servers know pretty well the wines on that list? They should know every wine on that list. It's such a small list. I think the, another point is, is those wines are very compatible with that chef's food. So if he's doing Northern Italian or he's doing some American flair cuisine or French style, then those wines should complement that cuisine. And you're probably, as a consumer, you're not going to be familiar with those wines. They're probably going to be regional or local in nature. And generally speaking, they're they're fairly nicely priced, I think. It's different because the the cuisine is local and they're drawing from local farmers and ranchers and uh, local winemakers in, in many of the cases. And, that you know, I like that. I like that wine list and I'm not intimidated by it because uh, I know that the server's going to be able to tell me how good it is. I'm probably going to be able to get a taste of it, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. should have a wine by the glass program that's compatible with that. W- would you generally, um, in that situation, give somebody a taste? Is it okay to ask for a taste? I think absolutely. You should be able to taste the wine. Okay. All right. So so we've covered that. So we're going to come back and we're going to get into that big fat wine list. Okay. The, the fatty. Oh, the one that, that, <laughs> that looks like the tele, the one that looks like a telephone book for oh, no. New York City. Okay. okay. We'll get into that next. Hey, my guest is Eric Olson, one of the finest chefs on the planet. I have loved his food for many years now. I just adore him as a friend, too, and I trust what he says. And that's why he's on Grape Encounters. We'll be back as we delve deeply into wineless. The best way to avoid spitting wine is to avoid wines unworthy of being swallowed. David will be right back in a spit second. Oops, my bad. Make that split second.
Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and talking about that nasty little thing called restaurant wine lists. I call it a nasty little thing because I think it just infuriates a lot of people. It drives me nuts. And I wanted to bring in here a restaurant expert. He's Eric Olson. He's a dear friend. He has worked at some of the finest resorts as the head chef, the head of food and beverage. He's a genius chef. He knows his wines. He's developed many wine lists, more than you could possibly count. He's here to hopefully uh, spill the beans on, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You don't mind, right? No, not at all. Even if you're shunned by your industry? No, I think there's some upside to the wine list. Let's get into the big wine list, okay? Somebody is going out for dinner. It's a special event, anniversary, birthday, something like that. They go to the hottest restaurant in town and the uh, hopefully a sommelier lays a wine list down on the table and the entire table shakes because it's so big. <laughs> it's, it's got a hundred pages or more and you've seen those lists. Have you developed lists that big? No, I haven't, David. Honestly. And, um, and why not? Well, I think it, you have to hold a lot of inventory. I mean, at Ojai Valley and we had a pretty good uh, wine inventory. I think it was about a million dollars, but the list wasn't a book that was just in the way on the table. So I, I understand there are lots and lots of wine aficionados out there who, who do know the wines, you know, they know, you know, some of these obscure wines that might come from Italy or Spain or France and, and they understand them. They've got a wine cellar at home. But for the vast majority of people, it's not just confusing. It's intimidating. It is intimidating. I think that's part of what they're trying to do is get a little intimidation going so they can control the, the purchase that you're going to make. I think they, they're trying to get the upper hand on some people. On the other side of it, though, David, is if you live in the Central Coast like we do and, and you make wine here and you want to come into a restaurant and that's what you're drinking, your own Central Coast wine, once in a while you'd like to say, hey, I'd like a bottle from Italy or I'd like to try some from France. Sure. So there, there's opportunities on both sides, and I, I think that's why you brought me on the show, just kind of show the upside of it. But I do agree there is an intimidation factor with those huge wine lists. Well, here's the part that, that intimidates me. You've got, let's say, and I've seen many wine lists in my life that are 100 pages. And wine is my entire life. I know my wines pretty well, but still there are so many of those wines that I don't know, I don't understand, and I'm staring down a $300 price tag on the majority of the bottles of wine on that list. I mean, we're certainly talking 100 plus. That's commonplace on the big wine list, 100 plus. If you're looking for a $40 bottle of wine, there may be two or three (laughs) Right? It's very true. It's very true. And, well, and, and, you feel, and you feel like an idiot ordering those. It's like you feel like that, you know, if I order that $40 bottle of wine, my waiter is going to take lousy care of me because I'm a cheapskate and I'm probably not going to tip him or her very big because I ain't got no money, honey. That's correct. That's is, correct. Isn't that the attitude on the staff side? I think it is. Well, it is. They're there to make their their basis is, is to make the price point go up. They're, they're commission based on tips. Um, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, those three $500 bottles of wine, um, you don't know if they've been properly stored. Hopefully they've been transported and they're stored correctly. A lot of times they're stored in rooms that are, are too warm or, or are not conducive for storing wine. They do have wine cellars, but sometimes they have the overflow. And where are they storing that wine? And 
Um, I'm, I'm with you, David. You know, you you have such magnitude of a list, and and where's it all going to end up? You, you're you're not certain, and and are the servers have they tasted all three hundred dollar bottles of wine in there? Can they speak? The answer about is it? absolutely not. It is. Yeah, they have absolutely not tasted those wines. They don't know. It's it's a, it's a it's a very good point. On the other side. There are some wine lists with some big price points on there that uh, the chef has tried and he believes in wholeheartedly. He knows the winemaker. Uh, he believes in that style. So there is some balance in all of that. But I agree, those huge wine lists with those overpriced wines, they're just overwhelming. And, and here's the thing about overpriced. This is the real ugly part about it. Now, I own a wine shop along with my wife. I know what our markup is on the wine. I know that our markup is about the same markup of any, as any other retail product. But on a wine list, in many cases, they want the first glass of wine to pay for the entire bottle, the wholesale cost of the bottle. With four to five glasses of wine coming out of a bottle, the markup on the bottle, tell me if I'm wrong, but in most cases, the markup on the bottle might be fourfold. It might be. It it's, might be fivefold. It might be. And by the way, that's fivefold of the wholesale price. So let's say that wholesale is 50% of retail, like which is kind of typical in the retail world, okay? That means that you're paying probably two and a half times what that wine cost the restaurant. You are, but we have to also look at the other side of it. The restaurants are providing a nice environment, usually live music or some form of music, nice lighting, nice ambiance, a server who's polished the wine glasses, should open the bottle of wine, serve it to you properly, and decant the wine if it's such a a bottle. Does that work $250? You know, if you're on a corporate I want Frank Sinatra to come sing at my table for $250. (laughs) If you're on a corporate card or you're an attorney and charge four fifty an hour, I don't. I think you know it's a, it's a moot point. But if you're a, a general citizen out there, I think it's a little bit steep. It's, it's pretty steep. Now, uh, it, I always wonder why it is that the restaurants that have the big gigantic wine list don't also have an abbreviated list. You know, for the would you like to have our you know more consumer friendly list? You know, here's a list for for folks who are looking for good quality wines that are, you know, on a budget. You know, we understand that not everybody can pay that amount. You know, let's say you're in you're in the best steak restaurant in the world, you're going to pay what, 50 to 70 dollars for a New York steak, which is a lot of money for most people, a ton of money. But now you're going to pay 3 times that or 4 times that or 5 times that for a bottle of wine? Now you're ordering the chicken fingers <laughs> to pay for the wine. Hopefully not. Yeah, you're going to have uh, you're going to have Eric Olson's chicken fingers. Do you make good chicken fingers? Oh, I make the best. Food. <laughs> I do my very but, best. Right? It's depriving people of being able to buy something else because they feel like, oh gosh, I'm not going to buy the $40 bottle of wine. Then the next step up's 100 and the next one up is $130. So even if they're buying that, they're getting, you know, they, they have to really, they're not going to have the appetizer. They're not going to have the salad. They're not going to have dessert. They're certainly not going to have any port after dinner because they, they blew their wad on a wine that they might not even like. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and they're going to be too afraid to, listen, nobody's sending back a three, you know, a $300 bottle of wine that was ordered by, or a $200 bottle of wine, or a $100 bottle of wine that was ordered by a, you know, a regular consumer. They're not going to send it back. They're too intimidated to do that. And by the way, you can. You absolutely can. If there, if we, we used to have a guarantee policy for any reason you don't like the wine, you could send it back. But most places, if the bottle is cork or oxidized, then you send it back. Well, yeah, if there's something damaged uh, about the wine, but what if you just don't like it? Is it okay? You just don't like the wine. I it was think recommended it's to you, but fine it, to send it, back. it is. And is the restaurant going to be hosed for that, or they can return it, can't they? Absolutely. 
So, so don't feel bad for the restaurant. Well, don't feel bad for them because, like you said, they're charging 2.5 over wholesale for the wine anyway. So there's plenty of profit in that. All right. So we got it. There's some really fun questions that we're going to address next. Okay. All righty. Talking to Eric Olson. If, if, if he don't know it, nobody does. He's a brilliant chef. He's a great cook. You know what? If you, if you call me, I'll get you his personal number, <laughs> his cell phone number. I've got it. And uh, you can call him. He'll come cook at your house for a lot of money. <laughs> Be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Remember, as much as you may love wine, it is not the answer to your problems. Unless the problem is you're out of wine. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. You don't have a problem with that, do you? about what he spends on wine, but liberal on how much he pours his friends. Here's your host, David Wilson. What in the world do you do when they drop that gigantic wine list on your lap or on the table? You know, they expect you to some, order some wine at that fine restaurant that you've saved up for months and months and months. You know, take your wife out to on Valentine's Day or to celebrate something special going on in your life. With me is Eric Olson. He's a guy who develops restaurants at resorts all over the country. All yes. over the world or the country? I've traveled the world, cooked in 22 countries, but uh, work here in America. Yeah, work here. He's one of the best, best of the best, getting into the spirit business and getting out of the restaurant business, which is why I was able to coax him to spill the beans on some of the stuff that is kind of a secret, the dirty secret of the wine world and restaurant world. And uh, Central Coast Distillery is your new business that's coming up. I can't, I cannot wait. I, I'm just worried that if you give me something and I don't like it, I don't know what I'm going to say. Throw it out. <laughs> Send it back. Will you respect my opinion if uh, I don't like it? I always do. Okay. All right. So here's the next question. The wine list comes to the table. The waiter brings it over or maybe a sommelier and they drop the wine list on the table in front of who? The A player of the, of the game. They size up the table. They do. And they decide who looks the smartest, right? Yeah, who looks the smartest and who's driving the Porsche and smoking the cigar. The blonde <laughs> girlfriend. That's so insulting. Why don't they just bring a, a wine list to every person on the table? What is it, just because it costs too much to print? Why don't they just put a wine list, you know, but we, we, at least put a few wine lists on the table so that people aren't passing the book back and forth and, you know, and that everybody feels that it's an inclusive experience? It's a good question. Why don't they have the women taste? I mean, generally speaking, they have the men taste. G yeah, generally they do. And you know what? After everything that happened in 2017 with, uh, you know, the way the women have been treated in this country, I think that's going to change. Maybe the wine list will go to the women. Maybe 2018. Wine list to the women. They probably have a better palate. The year of wine list <laughs> to the women. Dun, 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 dun. I love it. It's a great idea. Women have better palates anyway. That's what you just said, right? I think so. Yeah, they do. Yeah. That's an interesting side note, by the way. It all has to do with the number of taste buds you have on your tongue. And it is a absolute proven fact that women have way more taste buds on average. Another interesting proven fact, 
which really plays into this discussion a lot. And this is something to, to bear in mind. You know, you hear people talking about tasting notes that this wine has hints of leather and cassis and pencil lead and heaven knows what. <laughs> Raspberries and blackberries and blueberries and dirty underwear. And then we talk about wine in this context. But guess what? 75% of the human population is not able to discern those things in wine. You can't taste them. It doesn't mean you, you don't love the wine, but it means that the nuances that might make a ultra-great wine ultra-great are not going to be something that you're going to notice over a wine that is a quarter of the price. Exactly, and most people don't know the adjectives that describe the varietals of the wines. And you don't need to, do you? No, you don't. You just have to know what you like. If you like it, buy it, drink it, and don't like don't let anybody tell you what you're supposed to like because price doesn't mean it's a great wine for you. It probably means it's a great wine in terms of how it was made, the grapes that were selected for what it is, whether it's a Tempranillo or a Bordeaux. It's been crafted as perfectly as it could be. And generally speaking, I do think the price is a reflection of how good the wine is. I don't think that – I think in this day and age, I don't think they just put really ridiculously high prices on bad wine. Do no, you? Th no, they don't, David. And I think we need to rewind the tape a little bit. I think people like you are, are really good assets for picking wine for others. You have a boundless knowledge of wine. So I think we need to keep that door open that there are people qualified to – help establish what kind of wine other people would like to drink based on what they like. You know, it's funny in our wine shop, I could tell you that probably 25% of the wines in our shop are $20 or under, that uh, the next uh, 20 or 25% of the wines might be in the low 30s, the next 25% might be 35 to 45, and only maybe 20% roughly would be more than that. And I don't think we have four bottles of wine in the shop that are over $100. And, and you know what? Those are And every one of these wines are impeccable wines. They're delicious wines. You don't have to spend that amount of money. Sometimes spending a ton of money is just for the pure joy of doing that. Right. You know, right. I spent a lot of money on a bottle of wine. And if you really have a great palate and you can taste all these little nuances, if you go to a, um, a, a symphony, Mm -hmm. And you're able to just close your eyes and pick out the bassoon and the clarinet and the viola and all of the different instruments, the violin. Uh, the you cello. Know. Yeah, exactly. If, if, if you are that kind of person that can detect those nuances in wine with your taste buds, then by all means, when you get an opportunity to drink something really spectacular, drink it, enjoy it. Don't go beyond your budget to do that because I don't think the payoff that you're going to get is going to be worth what you spend necessarily unless you just, you know, you just need to do it for the thrill of doing it, like jumping out of an airplane with a parachute <laughs> or in my case, without one. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a good thing I was wearing a blousy shirt. <laughs> anyway, what do you think? Well, I think you have a good point. I, I mean, some people want to expend a lot of money because it's a special occasion. But as, as the wines I purchased from you yesterday, they're all beautiful wines. And like you say, they're price points where you can drink them every day. Did you drink them all overnight? I had two of them. They're <laughs> did fantastic. You really? Did I choose well? You did excellent. Okay, yeah. Well, I always tell people, people come into the wine shop and they go, well, what's good here? I go, everything's good here. I've tasted every wine here. I love every wine here. And they're, you know, what's the average price? It's you know, maybe $32. That's all you need to spend. And frankly, on a day-to-day -day basis, look, if you 
like Barefoot Wine, which for the enormous amount of wine that they make is pretty nice. You know, it's nice. You know, I like it better than Coca-Cola, and that's nothing against Coke. I like Coke. But uh, Coca-Cola, not Coke. Anyway, but if that's what you like and you get a thrill out of it and it really makes you happy, then drink that as your daily wine and, you know, get something more exciting later on in the day. And I know there are people that are listening going, what? Did you just endorse Barefoot? Yes, I did. Because there are millions of people that drink it. And they're perfectly happy with it. And it's what they can afford. And that's what that company set out to do. And many of the Gallo brands and the Bronco brands, that's what they set out to do, is make something that people would enjoy and that they would not feel guilty about spending eight bucks for. You know, Gallo has a great program. They really do. Uh, They have a high-end wine program. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know this. There's a lot of wines that you drink out there, folks, that are made by Gallo. And I know everybody, you know, kind of if you're old enough, you think a kind of Gallo is Gallo Hardy Burgundy and that sort of thing and lower-end wines. Gallo got out of that business. Not They didn't get out of the business, but they moved on beyond that business, expanded beyond that business a long time ago. And now they have, I think they probably have hundreds of higher-end brands now that they've purchased. And they're a very good company. And anybody that's in the wine business will tell you that they owe a lot to Gallo because Gallo, with their behemoth amount of money that they make, have reinvested into the wine industry and made it possible for us to make better and better and better wines. I think that's so important when you brought that fact up. They treat their employees good, very sustainable within our community and our industry. So, yes, that, that, that's a big part of a it is great a, It is a great company. You won't know these wines are made by these big, you know, multi-billion dollar companies unless you go Google it. Mm-hmm. And then you can go, you could say, you could go Google all brands made by Gallo or Constellation or Bronco. And then you're going to find out that, you know, some of the really big names are actually made by, we should do a show on that, by the way. That's a good point. You know, right. like, like, you know, where, <laughs> who really makes these wines? Right. Yeah, what's behind the curtain? Uh, what's behind the curtain? All right, we're going to come back in just a second and wrap it up. I am so pleased to have in the studio with me for the first show of 2018, which, by the way, is going to be a killer year to buy wine. The wines that uh, that were grown in 2016 that are coming out in 18 and in 2017 that'll come out. Some of them will come out in 18 and, and in 19. We are looking at the best wines ever made in America for sure. They're just some of the best wines. The grapes were terrific. Is that what you're hearing? I'm hearing the same thing, David. And oh, I'm looking forward to it. What a year for wine. What a, what a year for wine, wine drinkers. What a year. It is going to be amazing. So the next topic that we're going to discuss is one that a lot of people are not familiar with. And that is the idea of corkage fees and how that all works and why you need to start doing this. So we'll talk about that with my dear friend Eric Olson in just a moment here on Grape Encounters. People sometimes say it's the wine talking. Well, everyone knows that wine can't talk. That's why a bunch of grapes got together and hired David Wilson to do the talking for them. (laughs) David will uncork today's story after this.
know that you can visit us in person right in the heart of the Central Coast wine country of California. We can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels, introduce you to some epic wines in person, help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours, and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio. Okay, that last one was a, a stretch. Here's David. All right, back for a few more minutes with Grape Encounters Radio. We're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly of wine lists with somebody who is anything but ugly, Eric Olson. Good friend, great chef, and now soon to become one of the great spirit makers in the entire world. Thank you. You having fun? I'm having a ball. We're talking, you know, food and wine uh, again, you know, which must be strange for you since you've been traveling the world literally uh, trying to get the best recipes for making booze. Eating and drinking my way through. <laughs> Yeah. Last thing we got to talk about is corkage fees, okay? And a lot of people don't even know what I'm talking about when I say corkage fee, but uh, I'll let you explain that. What is what is that all about, and is it good or is it bad? I think it's good. I think that, you know, there's some principles that you probably want to follow with the corkage fees. Well, explain what it is. And... Uh, probably something you, you, you would want to touch on is that you don't bring in a commercialized bottle that you bought at Costco or Trader Joe's or something like that. Right, but I got to back up because, because let's, I mean, the, the idea of a corkage fee is, is that you bring your own bottle into the into the restaurant, Correct. and they so, charge you a fee to serve you your own bottle. And a lot of people go, "Oh, that's not that's not right." But it is uh, it is a hundred percent right. That's what I meant by you know because a lot of people don't even know that this exists, but it's a real option out there. It is a real option for you to bring a unique bottle in that you purchased in a unique location, or or, or you acquired this bottle, and it's something that's not on the wine list that you're going to go and. And dine at? Yeah, this is a this is a really super important point. You do not ever bring in a bottle of wine that's already on the restaurant's wine list. That's that's uncool. It's just uncool. You don't do it. Now you might not know it, and, but if you get there and you discover that they're serving that wine, or you could call, you want to bring in something that's unique and special that you didn't buy at Costco, that you didn't buy at uh, Trader Joe's, that you got at a tasting room someplace. It was given to you as a gift. It's you know something that you've been holding on to for a long time. It's an aged bottle of wine. That that would about cover it, right? Yeah, and speaking of age, you've, you've got to take in consideration that uh, that cork is bad or that bottle is oxidized, that, uh, that that responsibility is going to be on you. You're not going to take that bottle of wine to some chain restaurant, right? No, absolutely no. not. If you want to um, find out whether a restaurant in your area allows you to bring in a bottle and will charge you a corkage fee and how much the corkage fee is going to be, just give them a call. There is a website that I heard about, and I haven't really explored it much. I think it's either corkage or corkagefee.com. They post restaurants, thousands and thousands of restaurants, probably tens of thousands of restaurants that offer a corkage option. And they tell you how much the corkage is. You know, that's a good place to, I think, start checking. You could just Google it and find that that website. But the corkage fee is designed to cover the restaurant's legitimate expenses involving, you know, serving that wine and washing glasses and that sort of thing. Is it fair? I think it's more than fair. What's a, what's a reasonable corkage fee? Oh, I'd say twenty dollars, fifteen to twenty. I've seen them up to thirty. But you know, if you're if you're opening a two hundred dollar bottle of wine and you're charged a thirty dollar corkage fee, a two hundred dollar bottle of wine on a restaurant wine list would cost you more than five hundred dollars. You know, typically six hundred. Yeah, six hundred. So as as a result, you know, you're getting off easy. <laughs> you're drinking your wine and not theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely so. So it, it's 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 reasonable, and and it's something that a lot of people don't realize you can do. But I do it. I, I would say that I actually bring in a bottle more often than not, and I don't feel guilty about it. But the one thing you want to do 
always tell the server or the sommelier to bring an extra glass. Absolutely. And then you surprise them with a taste, a nice taste. Great point, right? David. Because what happens if we give them a taste? Better service and maybe they'll waive the fee. They do it a lot. Especially, you know, tell them you know me. Tell them you know Eric. They'll, they'll waive the corkage fee then, don't you think? They might. I'm being silly now. But yeah, no, that's something that you, you definitely want to do. The main thing is, too, that if a restaurant has a sommelier or a som, as we call it, you know, that's the kind of restaurant that you're generally going to find the corkage policy uh, in effect there. You know, some some restaurants, even if they've just have if they just have servers, they you know they might have that policy as well. Again, check ahead. But if you got something really special, you don't want to go to a restaurant that only has servers. You want somebody that really knows how to treat that bottle correctly. If you're paying a corkage fee, you should be perfectly okay with asking them to decant the wine. Absolutely. You know, that's all part of that corkage fee and, and do it. And by the way, when you're buying an expensive bottle of wine, don't be afraid to ask them to decant it. It's, uh, you know, it, comes, it goes with the territory. And it also enhances the wine. <laughs> it also enhances the wine as well. So that's basically it. I think we've covered it. Did we miss anything? I don't think so. I think we gave some good points. You know, there's you're going to find more and more as you go out to restaurants that there are more and more restaurants that have sommeliers. That's because a lot of people, uh, young people especially, are are studying to become sommeliers. And basically, the term sommelier is just a French word for wine expert, basically. Mm-hmm. But it, you go through a lot to become a sommelier. I mean, it's hard work. And if a restaurant does have a sommelier on staff. Take advantage of that person's talents. Ask them about the wines. It, you'd be very smart to just get your, figure out what your order is going to be. Everybody at the table's order is going to be. And, you know, ask the sommelier what bottle of wine they would recommend at a particular price point. And if it's $50, that's fine. Don't be embarrassed. If all their wines are $500, you know, who knows? They may have something in the back. You never know. Don't be embarrassed. Just ask the som. I think if they're working as a young som in a restaurant, they're probably not making a ton of money anyway. So they can sympathize with you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You've worked with a lot of soms? I've worked with a few. I like working with soms and and. Also, I like working with the winemaker directly to find out what his style and and what his beliefs are and what oak he's using and and, and the yeast strain. So, yeah, if you either way, you've got to get the knowledge. You've got to get the background of that wine. And definitely, you know, just take advantage of the knowledge of the people in the fine restaurants. But it's, you know, again, if you're going to a steakhouse that is a chain chain restaurant, uh, nothing we're talking about here really makes too much difference. They're probably going to have wines on the menu that are just everyday average wines that you can get at the grocery store. They're going to charge you a fortune for it. You're probably not going to be able to take advantage of a corkage fee. All bets are off for that. You know, it just depends how high end because a restaurant like Ruth's Chris is a chain restaurant. But I guarantee you, they've got a good wine list. You bet. They've got a great wine list. All right. That is going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Hey, my friend Eric Olson, Happy New Year and best of luck with the spirit world. Well, thank you very much and Happy New Year to you too. You're a spiritual guy, aren't you? I am a spiritual guy. Okay. Well, you have great fun with that. One of these days, we're we're going to bring you on the air and we're going to sip spirits and see if we can make it through the show. Wow. I look (laughs) forward to that. Hey, guys, we'll see you back here next week. It's been nice spending the last hour with you. We'll talk to you later. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 